Hi, my name's Owen, and I just want to add my welcome to you today. Whether you're a Foundation regular or whether you're with us for the first time today, I just want to say you're so welcome, uh, and I'm really glad that you've chosen to join us today. It's my privilege to be continuing our series looking at the New Testament letter of James, a letter written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, to the early church in the latter half of the first century. James's key concern in this letter is to help his readers and in turn to help us to understand what it looks like to have a living faith in Jesus Christ, to help us understand the good fruit of a life lived in response to the grace of God in Christ Jesus, a life lived for the glory of God and the good of others. We're going to be reading today from James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Uh, And so I'd say if you've got a Bible, uh, why don't you go ahead and open that up and turn to James chapter 4. If you don't have one, uh, don't worry, the words will come up on the screen here, but if you do, I would encourage you to go ahead and open it up. We're going to read together now, uh, and then we will take some time, half an hour or so, uh, to seek to understand and see how these words apply to us today in 21st century Britain. So let's read. James writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, we're going to... Uh, get straight into it uh, and seek to unpack and apply it in our lives today. So James begins this passage with a couple of rhetorical questions. He first asks, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Uh, And then effectively he's kind of saying, well, you don't have to guess. I'm going to tell you, don't they come from your desires that battle 
within you, and yes, yes they do. So remember that we always need to see these verses, see a text that we're reading in the context of the, the book that it's in and in the context of the rest of the Bible too. And just before these two questions, the immediate context here is that James has spoken about two types of wisdom which we looked at together last Sunday, about godly wisdom, wisdom from above, a wisdom that submits to God and lives in obedience to him, lives in obedience to his will and to his way for his glory and for the good of others. And at the opposite end, wisdom from below, which is rooted ultimately in each one of us, putting ourselves in the position of God, putting ourselves in the place where we expect everyone else to live for us and for our glory. And this causes problems because people don't live for us and our glory. (laughs) They're living for themselves and their glory. And so we find conflict and division pain, frustration, upset, offence. We don't have peace in our hearts or our relationships when we live by that kind of wisdom. And James, right at the start of chapter 4, he wants to hook us back in there now. When he asks what causes fights and quarrels, he's it is a rhetorical question, but he's wanting us to think that through for ourselves too. And The challenge is this, we are always tempted to answer with the problem being out there. (laughs) We're always tempted to answer this by looking out there somewhere. We'll look anywhere to place the blames on our fight and quarrels on, on someone or something else other than ourselves. You might hear that question, what causes quarrels and fights amongst you? And you think of someone who you find particularly irritating or frustrating, and you think, well, well, if they weren't so annoying, then we wouldn't fall out, or they're just so unreasonable, or it's not fair the way they handled that situation, or they just wind me right up. And when they do that, or when they say that, oh, just don't get me started. <laughs> and as we answer in that way, we simply prove James's point. And he won't let us get away with it. He gives his second rhetorical question, and as he does, he says, no, it's not out there. The problem is right here. It's in your heart. Those things, those behaviours may cause friction and difficulty in your relationships, but that's because you want everything done and your way and you want everything and everyone to revolve around you to revolve around your preferences and your wants and your desires and when they don't you feel hurt and you take offense James says the problem is in here it's your desires that battle within you now the desires James speaks of here is selfish pursuit, uh, the selfish pursuit of pleasure. And it's a pursuit that, that drives us, that 
leads us, that a pursuit where we want satisfaction and in our quest to find it, more often than not, other people have to pay the price. James goes on, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Now, it's possible that James was referring here to an actual event uh, in the church, although we, we really don't know that for sure. But it's also quite possible that he was just using hyperbole to drive home his point. Either way, real event or, or hyperbole to, to, to emphasize what he's saying, this sentence, the, the frustration of our ultimately unfulfilling quest for pleasure in, that as we pursue our desires and our appetites is vividly portrayed in this sense. He says, you desire or literally you lust for and you do not have. Well, there's frustration because you don't have what you're lusting for, and so you murder. You act in in anger, out of frustration. You try to get what you want by force. It goes on, you covet. There's this, this sense of like you literally, you hotly desire and cannot obtain. Frustration again, you can't get what you want, and so you squabble and fight your frustration spills over into your relationship with others. This frustration of an ultimately unfulfilling quest for pleasure is foolishness. It doesn't lead to peace or fulfillment. No, it leads to division and dissatisfaction. And yet it's tragically so often how we live our lives. This is how temptation and sin works. It it promises something that it can't deliver on, and so results in frustration, and ultimately actually leads to death, to eternal separation from God as we reject his way and and choose our way instead, as we reject the giver of life and, and so receive the penalty of death. Remember what James wrote back in in chapter 1. We read a few weeks ago together. It says, Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James wants us to remember that as we read these words Today, pursuing and being driven by your appetites is destructive. It wreaks havoc in your relationships. It can tear apart whole communities and families, and it will never truly lead to satisfaction. I know this sounds heavy, but there must be a a seriousness. There must be a sobriety to the way we approach this subject. James continues, you see that one of the side effects of this perpetual pleasure quest is that it generally leads to prayerlessness. Or when we do pray, prayers with the wrong 
motives, motives of self-glorification and gratification, the, the, the desire and drive of our heart is for our own glorification and our own benefit and our own good rather than for the glorification of God and, and the benefit and good of others. James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. You're so caught up in your desire for things that, that you don't actually come and seek God. And he says in verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In other words, you're so consumed with pursuing what you think will satisfy you that you don't stop and pray about it. And even if you do, you pray with your own agenda, wanting your comfort and pleasure instead of seeking God and his way and his will and his wisdom. Prayer could bring the answer. We could find in conversation and relationship with God true peace and fulfillment, what our hearts are longing for, but Instead, when we live with worldly wisdom out of the desire of our hearts, prayer doesn't lead to that. Because even our prayers are spoiled by our self-centered hearts. And this is painfully true, isn't it? I just, it's sad to admit it, but I recognize this in my own heart. How often when I, when I do come to pray, I pray out of something that I want or out of something that I believe I need or something that I think will, will make my life better in some way. How many times I've sat in church prayer meetings and tragic as it is, it's, it's just like working through a wish list of things that people want from God that they think will make their lives better. James goes on now to to further press his point. We read from verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused? To dwell in us. What's James talking about? <laughs> well, the Bible is rich with imagery of God's people as the church, as the, the bride of Christ, as being wedded to God, as being joined by an unbreakable, committed covenant love. And when we turn our back on God and try and satisfy ourselves elsewhere, it's like an adulterous bride running around with other men in full view of her husband who remains utterly faithful to her throughout. Who is jealous for her love, not, not an insecure jealousy because he thinks She'll find someone or something better, but because he knows that he can provide for her the love and care that she truly needs 
and that she's unsuccessfully looking for elsewhere. It's a powerful picture of the love of God and the love of God in the face of our unfaithfulness towards him as we run about trying to satisfy ourselves with other pleasures. We need to carry that image with us when we read then that friendship with the world means becoming an enemy of God. The friendship here means aligning with or agreeing with, being united with them. Friendship with the world then means aligning yourself with the world and its priorities. I need to be clear here, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't be friends with people who aren't Christians. In fact, you absolutely should. In fact, you must love them, love them deeply, befriend them, care for them, be with them. What it means is that you should not be friends with the world's way of thinking and living and being, that you should not live according to the world's wisdom. You should not line yourself up and associate yourself with the world's priorities. That your priorities should not be shaped by the world. Because when you do that, you put yourself at odds with God. James continues and I just think this is such a breathtaking turn in these verses. It's one of those moments where you just think, oh my goodness, like this is so good. This is such good news because James says, even when you do put yourself at odds with God, even when you do, God loves you and he wants relationship with you, Even when you sin, even when you pursue worldly pleasures, he is jealous for you that you would come back and find fulfillment in him. And James writes into that, that he gives us more grace. Whatever you've done, however far you've fallen, however much you have turned your back on God and gone your own way, however much you have pursued the hollow and empty promises of worldly pleasure, there is grace for you. There is forgiveness to be found. There is true and lasting peace and joy to be found. And it's on offer for you. He is jealous for you. He is longing that you would return, that he might lavish upon you grace upon grace. And James goes on to tell us how we might receive that grace. writes this next God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble when you stand proud in your sin when you believe that, that you're fine just as you are that you don't need to change that actually the world really is all about you and your satisfaction <laughs> then the Bible tells us, James tells us here, that God is opposed to you. But if we humble ourselves, 
if we acknowledge our fallenness and brokenness, if we acknowledge our need of him and we turn back to him, he gives grace. He gives more grace. Don't stand proud in your sin today. Humbly accept that you need forgiveness and that your quest for fulfillment is just folly without God. James now helps us to see what a a humble response to the grace of God looks like in practice. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. He says, submit yourselves to God. In other words, stop trying to be the boss. Stop trying to live as though it's your will, your way, and instead place yourself in submission under the authority of God. Recognize that his ways are better than your ways. Resist the devil. This is combative language it's it's like military terminology it means to to stand your ground and to fight against to be active in your stand against the devil and against temptation tool up use the sword of the spirit use the bible to resist temptation Counter the lies that fulfillment can be found elsewhere with the truth of Scripture that it's found in God and God alone. He's a defeated enemy. And as you resist him, he will flee from you. And in humility, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a glorious, glorious promise that as we turn to him we know that he will come and meet with us there's a a story that jesus told to help people understand this You, you may well have heard it it's called the prodigal son it's an amazing picture of the love of god towards us that as we humbly draw near to him, that he too draws near to us. It, it tells of a son who went to his father and asked for his inheritance early. He wanted everything here and now. He was pursuing pleasure like we do too. He walked away from his father with this inheritance and he squandered it parties and drink and wild living and all the things that people think will satisfy them and when it was all spent his pursuit of pleasure left him broke and lonely and in that place he realized that he needed to return to his father 
And so humbly he returned home, willing to be a servant in his father's house, recognizing that would be more than he deserved. And yet, as he returned, his father, seeing him still a long way off, ran to meet him and embraced him and brought him home with joy and welcomed him back, not as a servant, but as a son. Put a robe on his shoulders and a ring on his finger and celebrated. This is a picture of God, our Father, as we turn from going our way. So we turn from this hollow pursuit of worldly pleasure and we turn to him. Draw near to God and he draws near to you. James goes on, wash your hands, purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's a physical stop what you're doing, wash your hands. And there's a head and a heart. Recognize your sinful desires. Don't pursue them anymore. Your desires need to change. Your priorities need to change. You need to line up with God's wisdom and God's ways. And then we get to this. James writes, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Guys, this is important. James is writing about us recognizing the weight and the seriousness of our sin. There's no space here for a a flippant response. Oh, you know, God forgives me, so it's okay. Oh, yeah, I did make a mistake, but it's all right. That's not the tone here. There is no space for a flippant response. The grace of God does not lead us to a a kind of casual, oh, hey-ho, attitude when we're confronted with our fallenness, when we're confronted with our sin, when we realize our sinfulness. We just have two choices, and neither of them leaves a kind of middle ground where somehow we kind of bumble into God's presence and think, hey, hey, oh, that's good, it doesn't matter, I'm, I'm forgiven. The first is pride, which refuses to see the depths of our sin and leaves us continuing in worldly wisdom, continuing in our own way and cut off from God. And the other is humility and repentance. I think one of the great problems of our society is that, and it has so infected the church too, is a trivializing of sin and a desire for a kind of happy-go-lucky, soothing message. We just want good vibes. We just want to be told everything's okay, it's all right, don't worry. It's like, oh, don't tell me about what I can't, tell me about what I can. Don't tell me about judgment and death. Tell me about love and life. But here's the problem. Until we come face to face with the depth and seriousness of our sin, there is no hope for us. There's grace, more grace. But we receive it humbly. When we realize the depth of our sin... 
when we realize the hurt that we've caused others by living by the world's wisdom, by living out our own passions, our own selfish desires, when the gravity of what it means to have lived in rebellion to the God of all creation finally hits us, then we're drawn to genuine repentance that James writes about here. Snotty, tear-filled, weeping repentance. It's not a glib, oh, whoops. It's a deep, heartfelt grief as we realize what we've done, as we identify ourselves with the adulterous, the unfaithful bride who has grieved our loving, holy God. We don't stay in that place of mourning or grief forever, no. But we do need to go there. The true joy of salvation can't be discovered until we realize the depth of our sin and our need of forgiveness. John Stott says this, says, No man has ever truly appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It's only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Until we've been there, until we've realized the depth of our fallenness we remain proud and dead but when we humble ourselves when we repent and turn to God then there is grace there is forgiveness and then there comes fullness of joy James concludes this section and we're going to conclude today with one final point of application. He writes from verse 11 and 12, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? As we round off this passage, James will simply not allow us to wriggle off the hook. He says, don't go round looking to try and justify yourself in comparison with others. This is the mirror that we see our true reflection in. Don't try to deflect it by pointing at others and pointing out their faults. You know, we do that when we're in the spotlight, don't we? Some of you might be doing it even now. You're kind of rattling through a list in your head of of all the people who are far worse than you and deserve the forgiveness of God far less than you. You're justifying yourself in comparison to them. You say, yeah, yeah, sure. I I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but have you seen them? Do you know what they did last week? 
I'm practically a saint by comparison. But the mirror shows you've fallen short and you need forgiveness. It's like James says, who are you to judge others? You've got your own stuff to deal with. And so humbly, I want to appeal to you today. Humbly, honestly, soberly, come before God and ask for forgiveness. Take time today to examine your own heart and to see where you've begun to follow the world's wisdom, where you have made friends with the world and put yourself at odds with God and in humility return to him. Maybe with tears, maybe with grief, as you come face to face with the depth of your fallenness and your rebellion against God. But as you go through that process, know that there is more grace. That as you humbly turn to him, he draws near to you and he wants to lavish his love and his grace upon you. That you would find fullness of joy in him. I want to pray now and we'll finish. Lord, I recognize the propensity of my own heart to, to, to pursue things that I believe will give me satisfaction or fulfillment. I know the, the draw of my own desires to chase after things that ultimately will not and cannot fulfill or satisfy me, and yet I keep going there. Lord, each one of us can see that in our own lives. We thank you that Jesus Christ, you went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to to pay the price for our rebellion, that when we humbly come to you, when we humbly acknowledge our rebellion and our sin and we turn again to you and ask for forgiveness, that you come and you meet us in that moment and that there is more grace. Lord, we look to you again now. I pray for my brothers and sisters that as they listen today, that as you highlight things in in our hearts and lives, that you would help us to be soft-hearted and not to to respond in a proud and hard-hearted way where we walk away from you, but instead to allow your word to do its work in our lives, to, to see that true reflection in the mirror and instead of hardening us against you, to turn and to repent and to find forgiveness and fullness of joy in you. Lord, you are the only one who truly satisfies. We thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. We look to you again now. Fill us with your spirit and help us to live this week for your glory and for the good of those around us.